Hi, welcome to the program. This is Behind the Curtain, the show about life and how we choose to navigate down the not-so-yellow brick road of it. I'm your host, Kathy Barrett, and I'm so grateful to you for tuning in today. I'd like to begin by reading a quote, one that I feel really sets the tone for today's program, and to welcome my guest today. Never underestimate the power of dreams and the influence of the human spirit. We are all the same in this notion. The potential for greatness lives within each of us. These are the words of Wilma Rudolph, who was born prematurely in 1940 and spent her childhood stricken with polio. Her doctor said she would never walk again, but hard work, determination, and physical therapy led Wilma not only walk, but she began running, and she went on to become an international track and field superstar, winning three gold medals at the 1960 Olympics in Rome. She was the first woman to accomplish such a feat, and in 1961, she went on to become the first black woman to win the James E. Sullivan Award, which is America's highest honor given to amateur athletics. So at that time, Wilma not only had to break through her physical limitations, but she also broke through the color barrier of segregation. Greatness does live within each of us. That's what Wilma Rudolph's quote was all about. And you can feel that greatness emanating from my guest. She is the case manager for Community Connections out of Washington, D.C., Community Connections is one of the largest not-for-profit agencies in the nation's capital, committed to providing innovative and compassionate mental health services, addiction treatment, and residential care for D.C.'s most vulnerable citizens. Grace came to national attention a few months ago when she intervened in a tense confrontation between a young mentally ill homeless man and two Washington, D.C. police officers who both had their guns drawn and pointed at the young homeless man. The names of Michael Brown, Trayvon Martin, and Stephon Clark, all young men who lost their lives during confrontations with the police recently flashed before her. Grace's courage and quick thinking helped to save a young man's life that morning. And that is only the beginning of an incredible story about a remarkable young woman whose heart knows no boundaries. Grace McKinnon, it is an honor to meet you and to call you friend and to have you on the program today. Thanks for being with us. I was just saying thank you so much for having me on the show. It's an honor to be here and to hear all those kind words that you shared about me. Um, I really, truly appreciate it. Um, I'm just in tears soaking it all up and saying, wow, that's me. So deeply humbled and honored. So much thanks. Thank you again for being here. So let's, mm-hmm. you know, for the listeners out there, take us back to that very day in November. You're on your way to work when suddenly what happens? So I remember the exact day. I remember what I had on. Um, It was November 7th, 2018. I was on the way back, actually, from a hospital psych unit visiting one of my coworkers' clients. It was her birthday. And normally the client likes to talk a lot, but I just felt this urge that I had to leave. And so I said, you know, Miss So-and-so, I have to leave, but I'll follow up with you. And so I got in my car, and I'm just driving, driving. And so normally I go a totally different way, but somehow I end up going another way. And while I'm driving, I see a young man walking across the street, you know, clearly in distress, and two police officers following him with guns drawn. And I said, wait, what? What's going on? I see feathers flying in the air, and I'm like, oh, they must have shot his coat. 
So I quickly put my car in park, turn my hazards on, and get out. Now, mind you, I had just got, I had just bought this car not too long ago, so that was a risk. Um, but I wasn't thinking about that. I wasn't thinking about, you know, that at all. So I pulled out my phone, um, and I began to record. And not only am I a social worker, um, I just believe in the power of holding police officers accountable because um, so often that's not done. And even if it is done, we don't often see justice. So I learned that also in my undergraduate class where we had a uh, a class called Know Your Rights. And we talked about how it's your right to record the police and that you can do that. And in the video, you hear me saying, you know, this is my right. I can record. So I just immediately started recording. And I saw, you know, the young man at the time I thought he was, you know, about my age. Turns out he's only he was only nineteen. And mm. so he sees me stop, you know, of uh, you know, African American to African American, there's always an instant connection. You know, that's my brother. Regardless of whether mm-hmm. we have blood relation or not, we come from the same heritage and lineage. And so I had a duty to stop. That not only is he African American, he's a human being and every human being deserves compassion. So I stopped and I said, hey, you know, please get on the ground. This isn't worth dying for. Please get on the ground. And it's funny because in the video, people say, you sounded so calm. And from the outside looking in, I could see how they would think that. But in that in that video, from me knowing how I sound when I'm calm, I wasn't, I wasn't very calm. Um, but it was, you know, it was more so like a fight or flight situation. And when it comes to a human life, which is one of the most precious things, um, I'll always fight for that. So that's how that event happened. After the event, I tried to get myself together to go back into the office because it was only about maybe 12 or 1 o'clock, and I had to be, you know, I'm at work until 5. And so I was such in a state of shock, my hands were shaking, and I began to feel paralyzed. And so whatever came over me, I had enough uh thought or wherewithal to upload it on social media because I just needed some validation. Like, no, this didn't happen. I didn't just see this. I wasn't just a part of this because in the, in the altercation, the gun was actually pointed at me. The young man was standing behind me. And so I posted the, you know, the video on Twitter and it blew up. And I mean, in about an hour, almost 3 million people had saw it worldwide and it didn't only the only moment that it clicked that I could have died was when someone said, "Hey, you know you could have died, right? There was a gun pointed at you." And in that moment, I, I remember I just started crying, and it made it so real for me. So many different lessons in that experience. I love when you say that. You know, he's my brother. He's a complete stranger, but he's my brother. We come from the same lineage. I mean, if we could all walk around thinking that, we'd have peace in the world. You know, instead of what's going right. on right now. But in addition, knowing your rights knowing that, you know, you had the right to record it. I heard them say they were telling you to get out of the way, but you refused to listen to them. What was the thought process? They got their guns drawn at you, yet you stood firm. No, I'm not afraid of the police. And I'm not afraid of the police because I know my rights. And even if I didn't know my rights, I wouldn't be afraid of the police because if you have to have a gun to protect people, then you're afraid, right? Mm -hmm. Because I didn't have a gun and neither did the young man. He had a knife to protect him because he's homeless, and growing up homeless, you you do need things to protect yourself. And so, I I, I was definitely on on autopilot, but I knew if I if I wasn't supposed to be in that situation, then I wouldn't have been there. And so I know if I'm in a situation, then I'm going to leave out alive. So I'm never thinking about you know the worst, like oh I could have I could have died. It wasn't until after the fact. In the moment, I was like, hey, clearly this is something that I have to do. 
no man can take my life unless it's my time to go. So hmm. when he told me to stop recording, I already knew it. I already knew, I know my rights, and that's the key when we get in these situations. We have to be educated and we have to be aware of who we are as people and what we can and can't do. I wasn't violating anyone's rights by standing there and recording. I wasn't interfering with the police investigation. I was merely saving another human being. And if that's something that would get me a criminal charge or get me into jail, then uh, that's a worthy cause because I will never back down when it comes to justice. I am a true believer in in destiny as pulling you into that situation in a sense because you made a split second decision to intervene in a very dangerous situation which really did jeopardize your own safety but there's something so uh, deep within you that was driving you to intervene in that moment so Mm -hmm. I want you to share a little bit about your personal story because I, I feel like all of the obstacles and challenges that you were faced with growing up actually prepared you to be in this moment with this homeless man and the police and, and save a life in the process. Yes. And I definitely agree with that. Um, It's funny how, you know, the events of our lives, looking back, it could be the most horrible thing. And then 10 years later, you're like, wow, that's why I had to go through that. And it's always to make you a more compassionate, um, more understanding, more kind, more strong person, and also to use those lessons and gifts to help others. And so, Another thing was, um, and we talked about this in depth last weekend, Kathy, um, the young man, I could tell that he was homeless based on how he dressed, um, based on his presentation, because I, you know, I used to be homeless all throughout middle school, off and on in high school, and even in a little bit of college, uh, college and grad school, you know, coming home during Christmas breaks and staying with friends and different friends and, you know, not really having access to the things that most people have. But I remember I never complained. I never complained. I always found a way. Um, And because I think we underestimate the power of the human spirit, the human mind, the human body. We're incredibly resilient species. But if we can just maintain that focus through those dark times, we can encourage ourselves. And it takes a lot more than just saying it. It takes putting it into practice. And so for years I had practice of encouraging myself and being with people, you know, teachers, mentors, mentors. friends, friends' parents who just so happened to let me stay with them, you know. And I've been on my own since I was 14. Um, So I've learned a lot, good and bad, um, through a lot of experiences. And so that has filled me with an immense amount of compassion and empathy um, for others. And, you know, I realized about compassion. Um, You can only have compassion if you have understanding. So if you don't have understanding, then you can sympathize with the person. Oh, man, that must suck. But until you un- truly understand what it feels like, you know, to, you know, lose an aunt to cancer or lose a loved one to suicide or be homeless for, you know, a long amount of time, you don't really understand. And that's okay. You know, that doesn't mean that you're less than, but we have to seek out those experiences, you know, in another way if we want to truly help others. And so growing up homeless, I learned so much about people and myself, and I was really able to learn who I was and who I wasn't. Um, and it was very dangerous, you know, living with different families, whether they were my friends or not. You know, there's instances where I've almost gotten raped, um, where I was sexually assaulted, um, you know, where I was cold and hungry or used to have to wash up in McDonald's or community colleges. I remember one time I saw one of my classmates um, from high school. She would take swimming classes at, you know, our local community college, CSM, 
I still remember Audrey Donahue. She probably didn't even remember that. But I remember I saw her in the morning at CSM, and she said, Grace, what are you doing here? I said, oh, you know, just hanging out. It was too early to be hanging out, though. It was like 5 a.m. on a Monday. Mm. Who hangs out at a community college at 5 a.m. on a Monday? Now, she was taking swimming classes. I was there to shower because I had school, you know, in about two hours. So I remember thinking, man, that was kind of, you know, kind of embarrassing. But then I said, well, no, she doesn't know what's going on, and at least I have access to this community college to be able to shower. But growing up homeless and having to do things like that can take a toll on you. But I just flipped into a positive. Now I know that if I ever can't shower, I can go to community college, or if I can't shower at home, I can go to the gym. So it's made me incredibly resourceful um, and and compassionate towards others, and I, I wouldn't change it, you know, for anything. I find you so remarkable. And what do you think that is, you know, the difference between how you handled, you know, being homeless and the things that you were faced with as you were homeless and, and to be able to maintain grades and, and go on to fulfill your, your goals in the process of this, I find amazing. There are some people that go through horrible experiences and don't make it out of it. And then there are people like you that take those challenges and overcome them and succeed in ways that people with far more benefits um, do not. Right. Um, And I would say combination of a lot of factors, right? So uh, it's, it's not only recognizing and learning because initially I, you know, I didn't, I didn't really know the reason why I was going through things, but as a child, I used to always say, I know it's not going to always be like this, you know, and I I was just a happy-go-lucky child and living in the worst conditions, but I always randomly would say, I know it's not going to always be like this. It's going to get better one day. I mean, three and four saying things like this. So Mm -hmm. I think that having a certain uh, mindset when you're going through these things will definitely propel you over, right? So it's easy to you know, look around at your conditions and say, man, this really sucks, and I don't want to live like this, or I'm tired of this, and that's okay. You have to acknowledge that first to be able to get to the place of, okay, so what now? Because you can't just lay in your bed and stay there forever when the world is moving every day. So you have to have, A, the right mindset when you're going through these challenges and know that everything is terribly temporary. You know, the Bible talks about light afflictions and working for your 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 long-term good and I'm not a religious person by any means at all when we talk about organized religion but I take inspiration from all faiths and cultures um and so when we think about what we're going through we have to always remember that it's for a reason and we can believe that you know there's a difference from from believing and knowing but you have to really know that it's working out for your good and so when I look back on my life I've always had people along my path to support me and I was not only did I have people to support me, I allowed them to support me. Um, so, mm. so many, so often we have so much pride. We don't want to tell people what's going on. We don't want to let people give us that $50. They may need it. You know, I don't want to take it from them. Well, if they're giving it to you, then you should, you should allow them to help you because clearly they want to help you. So I think it comes from having the right mindset, being open to support and allowing people to support you, and then also recognizing that everything happens for a reason, good and bad. And we may not know it right now, but you will know it in time. It's kind of like those connect-the-dot puzzles where first mm-hmm. you're like, what is this? I don't want to connect these dots. And then you're like, oh, it's a peacock, or oh, it's a butterfly. 
You wouldn't right. have known that if you stopped at dot fifty. You got to keep going until you get to dot three hundred or dot five hundred. You got to continue to connect the dots and trust the process. It's not easy, but the more that you trust, the easier it gets because you have that knowledge based on your past experiences that you can use for your future experience. So I just developed that mindset from a young age, but going through so many traumatic experiences at a young age, I always say, you know, you're an old soul. You're so old. You're so mature. But because I have been through those experiences and I would observe objectively, okay, well, this doesn't make sense. You know, this isn't supposed to be this way. So when I get to a place where I can help, I'm going to use this experience to help others because I know how it feels. And that's all of our responsibility as human beings, you know, whether it's through social work or science or art or whatever, you know, your passion is. And even if you don't know it, you you, you will definitely be guided to it because that's what we're that's what we're all here for. Not only did you have people that wanted to support you and your goals and your dream, but you allowed that to happen. So often when people have obstacles and, and a difficult childhoods growing up, it's very difficult to have the kind of personality that will allow that help to come in. Us can do this alone, whether it's a kind word, a warm embrace at the right time, like you say, somebody providing money and opportunity. None of us make it through this life alone. So it's it's something that, you know, is, is a gift that we each have to give. And I, you know, it's it's lovely to hear you speak about that. I, I just want to share with the uh, listeners about what's happening in D.C., you know, with the homeless uh, situation. Their population um, in Washington, D.C. surpassed 700,000 in 2018. That's according to the U.S. Census Bureau statistics. 19% of the population lives in poverty. And I don't think D.C. is alone in this. As the difference between the haves and the have-nots continues to widen, we're going to see more and more of this happening around the country. 50% of the homeless people have been institutionalized either by hospital or by jail. African-American D.C. residents make up 47.7% of the district's population, yet they comprise 88.4% of adults experiencing homelessness. These figures tell a horrible tale. As a licensed social worker, are you seeing this on the streets, and what can we do to get them back to living in society again? Um. And those are all great questions. I definitely see that at my job. You know, we have clients that are homeless. One lady, she comes into the organization and she she changes her clothes, she takes her daily meds, and she, you know, we even give her food. So we, I see that on a up close and personal basis every day. And it's like, what is and isn't being done for these people? Is honestly, we're doing them a disservice. You know, we're just keeping them at the maintenance level, if that. And the mm-hmm. goal of these social services is to rehabilitate and reintegrate and reform these people, not only from a housing perspective, but from a biopsychosocial perspective. A lot of times it's more than, you know, just the fact that someone doesn't have a house. It's the fact that they may have a mental health diagnosis or they don't have family to support them or they don't know, you know, or they've been in jail or, you know, they don't have, you know, access to resources like a cell phone or a computer like so many of us have. And so I think it's um it's definitely evident in D.C., and I'm sure a lot of other major and smaller cities across, you know, the nation. Um, I think what can be done is first just doing our research um, about, you know, in our local communities, you know, what, what funding is available. 
According to the D.C. Fiscal Policy Institute, $1.4 million is allocated for the homeless services in D.C. Now, that includes rapid rehousing, permanent supportive housing, uh, long-term housing, and traditional housing. Notice it's just it only includes housing. But what about mm-hmm. programs to teach people skills? What about social programs that teach people how to apply for jobs? What about programs that teach people about emotional health? We don't have that. We only focus on getting people into housing. In order to qualify, you have to have all of these documents and things in place, and that automatically knocks so many people out. You know, not all people use substances, but some people do. You know, when you get down to your wits end, why not smoke, you know, a K2, uh, a blunt of K2, or do a little crack cocaine? You know, who's going to care anyway? That's a lot of people's mindset. Not a lot of people, but that is some people's mindset. And so, you know, when you get into these programs that you have to do, you know, different uh, tests or uh, measures to show your level of care, if you use drugs, you're automatically out of the running. And that's not fair. That discourages so many people, you know, I have used drugs or I have a criminal record or, you know, I don't don't have a mental health diagnosis. I won't qualify. We have to create more compassionate standards to allow human beings to access the resources that we all deserve as basic rights as people. You know, we shouldn't be putting – these measures, unrealistic measures into place, that just that just disqualifies more than half of the people in D.C. for housing, and it's really not fair. So we have to begin to do research and see what we can do as people, you know, to reform not only the system but re- our communities. And if we can't do something, we can volunteer at agencies or we can put our minds together or, you know, you know, do like a little program where we can feed, you know, the homeless community in our area one weekend, you know, even just little things like that plant seeds of compassion. But there has to be a more integrated and compassionate approach, not only from the government, but from the community and from people like you and I. I agree with that. It also sounds like with the figures uh, that you gave, even if uh, just for housing, that it seems like it's underfunded by millions of dollars. That's crazy. It's totally underfunded. I have clients that have been waiting for housing for five years and that consistently end up in the psych unit because why not? They're going to feed you there. You'll be able to get back stable on meds. And it's really not fair because no one wants to be in the psych unit. But when, you know, when you consider or in jail, why not? You know, why not? you know, go back to jail when at least you know you'll get fed or you'll have three meals and a, and a bed to sleep in. We need to figure out something more effective and more compassionate to allow people to have access to resources. And the truth of it is there's so many people that need, you know, these basic things in the district, and it's just not enough. It's not enough funding. It's not enough funding for it. And so it's frustrating because from our client's perspective, they look at us like, you know, why why aren't you doing your job? But it's like we're yeah. operating under the larger system that does not see these issues as important as we do. So it's very well, frustrating, but it has to be a change. Well, it's I find it, like, ridiculous because $1.4 million would not even buy you a, a one-bedroom apartment in New York City. <laughs> do you right. know what I'm saying? It's like so right. to have that as a budget wouldn't even provide enough money for, you know, 10 clients, you know, to help them get back on track. So right. that's uh, that's really an interesting point that you bring up. And I'm so glad that you shared that number with me because something really does have to be done about it. Like I said, not just in D.C., but it's happening all over the country like this. Yeah. Talk about the police for a second. A lot of young 
black men have lost their lives and justice is not really being served because, you know, people are not being punished, uh, you know, mm-hmm. for taking the lives of these young men. And, and there should be justice being served and how they're handling situations with those that are mentally challenged, you know, that have mental illness. We need to recognize that there's systemic racism, not just in the police department, but then it infiltrates into the court system as well. And Mm -hmm. we need to come up with the proper training that stops this. The American Psychological Association in 2016 did this major study about policing in black and white about police departments are eager for ways to reduce racial disparities and psychological research is beginning to find answers, but those answers are all over the board as well. So for everyone that comes up and says, yes, we are arresting more uh, black individuals than white individuals. They're being stopped more in traffic violations. There'll be, there'll be a counter argument to that. So I'm just Mm -hmm. curious in your profession, and you've seen this day in and day out, where do you see we can build a bridge between what's happening in the streets and, and the police department to prevent, like you prevented, uh, a life from being lost, other lives from being lost moving forward? I think there needs to be an open dialogue and a, and a, and a compassionate dialogue between you know people who are supposed to be protecting our communities and people in the community, um, and from all different walks of life, because our communities are becoming more diverse every day. Um, but in the process of doing that, sometimes, you know, we talk about gentrification. We're losing, you know, the cornerstone aspects of our communities, especially communities like D.C., which are historically African-American. We need we need members from those communities to, you know, speak about their experiences and and to also come with solutions, right, because sometimes these, you know, these officers and institutions don't have solutions. And I can imagine that if I were in their shoes, I probably wouldn't either because clearly it's a, it's an epidemic, you know, people are dying every day. And so I think communication and collaboration are a great place to start. So, you know, at community meetings, you know, showing up, you know, no matter how old you are, you're never too young to be, to speak up for what's right. Um, coming up and, you know, talking about your experiences and saying, how can I volunteer? How can I be a part of this? You know, being truly willing to, you know, get involved, I think is a great place to start. And I think sometimes, you know, when you go to this meeting, the police are wearing the outfits and, you know, their uniforms, and that can be a little intimidating, especially if, you know, your cousin just got shot by the police or, you know, a friend who's gotten shot by the police, or you have just even read the news reports and seen all the murders at the hands you know, from police. And, you know, it's not to blame the police, you know, and saying that they're the bad guys, because I think it's a lot of misunderstanding on both issues most of the time. But misunderstanding just results from miscommunication or lack of communication. And in this case, I think it's a lack of communication. So that's always a great place to start when you have anything in your life that, you know, seems to be a misunderstanding. So I think just having these community meetings and getting buy-in from the community when we develop programs for those communities seems like a pretty great place to start so that we can have um, not only an informed perspective, but a compassionate perspective as well. I agree with you. And in addition to the community policing where the police 
is coming together with the community. The community gets to be less fearful of them. Let's face it, there's a lot of issues going on, especially in this country today. There's hate mongers all over the place that we see not only against people of color, but immigrants, uh, even the Jewish population, you know, with, with Nazi symbols being drawn all over the place. It, these are very, very scary times. But, mm-hmm. you know, the research that's out there definitely points to patterns of implicit um, bias. And there's a lot that we all still have to learn about that in the real world. And there is uh, this gentleman, David M. Corey, he's a Ph.D. police psychologist and founding president of the American Board of Police and Public Safety Psychology, says, yes, implicit bias can if- can affect us, the more important questions are which persons are affected and under what conditions. Big question. And there's many different ways to approach it. And what you brought up is definitely important. And also getting underneath the psychological aspect of where this systemic racism comes from and how it impacts all of us living in society today is also very important. Thank you for sharing that. The show today is actually being dedicated to uh, the memory of my brother, John McGinley, uh, the memory of Grace's brother, Matthew McKinnon, and Sidney Aiello, who is a young Parkland student who survived the shooting and unfortunately took her own life yesterday. The show is dedicated to those three individuals whom we will miss greatly. Basically, Grace and I belong to a club that no one wants membership in. We both lost a brother to suicide. Grace has started something called Roses for My Brother, uh, which, like everything else in her life, she she has taken and, and turned those things uh, into inspiring healing and hope for others. Talk a little bit about what you learned from the trauma of losing your brother and why you developed Roses for My Brother. Sure. Um and I just want to send love and compassion to anyone who's dealt with suicidal feelings or thoughts or has lost a loved one to suicide or who's currently trying to help someone who's dealing with suicidal thoughts and feelings. Um, wow, that was probably um, my brother passed in October 25th, 2016. Um, and I remember the day, you know, like it was yesterday, got the call, um, and my other brother came and raced to pick me up. And, I mean, I will never forget you know, seeing my brother's lifeless body on the floor. I remember what he had on. Um, sometimes, you know, it, it still somewhat is like, wow, that really happened. But, you know, it, you know, I got to the point in my healing where I was, I was able to, I'm able to accept it now and I use it to, you know, inspire others. But for a long time, I was very depressed. Um, I told my friend, you know, I was like a fragment, a hologram of pain, he was like, my gosh. But I, I literally felt like I was not even a human. You know, when we get so low mentally and emotionally, it kind of takes you outside of your body because the trauma and the pain is just too much to bear. Um, so I've learned, you know, I learned a lot about myself in that process. I learned about how much I could take, and if I could make it through that, then I can make it through anything. And it's made me, my brother's death has made me, uh, even more compassionate and observant and understanding person. And I now I feel like I'm more connected to him than when he was physically here. Um, he's constantly sending me signs and, 
little blessings along the way that I know that they're exactly related to him. And so I'm thankful for that. But it wasn't, it definitely wasn't always like that. You know, it took time. It took me processing my emotions and not avoiding them and, you know, being patient and gentle with myself. And, I mean, I had some really ugly days. You can ask, you know, so many people that were with me at that time. I had some really ugly days. I went from not eating, you know, almost maybe even seven or eight months ago now I eat three meals a day. You know, I went from not even getting out of bed to, you know, socializing with friends or even being able to talk about suicide was just, you know, it was such a trigger for me. Anyone would mention suicide or, you know, our society is so full of, you know, references to people wanting to kill themselves. You know, people take the gun and be like, when they've had a long day, things like that would intensely trigger me because I hadn't healed that wound yet. And that was okay, you know, a loss like that takes a long time to recover from, and many don't. And so I'm thankful to be, you know, not only alive and alive after something like that, but to be doing well is such a blessing. And so I have a responsibility to share my lessons with others. And actually after, this was probably a a couple weeks after my brother died, I got the idea for Roses from my brother. It just came out of nowhere, and I just started writing everything down. And I said, I don't know what this is, but I know it'll come, you know, it'll it'll show itself to me when it's time. And so I closed the book. Two years later, October 25th, 2018, I said, it's time to start Roses for My Brother. And so I was hanging out with my friends at that time, and I said, yo, like, I got to go away, like, for like an hour and figure out, you know, the mission statement, my goals, and how I want to introduce this to the world. And so I went to my friend's back room and wrote down everything I wanted to do made first I made a Facebook page, Roses for for the number four, my brother. And then I made an Instagram, Roses for M B in the Twitter page. And so that was about uh a two weeks before the event with Anthony and the police. And I just woke up and I felt that day I was like, Today's the day I have to do it today. I just felt so urgent to do it that day and I said, Okay, I'll do it today. Two weeks later the event with Anthony and the police happened and a lot of times, you know, people in my generation, when you go viral, you post like a SoundCloud link or, Hey, follow me, you know, I make cupcakes or I make T shirts, you know, opportunity mm-hmm. to further your own business endeavors. And so I said, Hey, now while you all are here, please support my page roses for my brother in honor of my brother who died by suicide. Kathy, can I tell you I went from sixty followers in two weeks to five thousand followers in one day. Wow. I believe it. Just from, just from, you know, listening to that urge, that gentle urge that everyone, you know, feels, whether they call it the Holy Spirit or the universe or, you know, my, you know, uh, something told me, you know, whatever it is, it's something that has a higher intelligence than what we have. And we should listen to it because it is constantly guiding to us, you know, or guiding us to a place of, of, of a place of, understanding and where we can share our lessons with others. And we may not trust it. Like, why do I feel like I should do this? Just do it. I promise you're going to be met with so much abundance and blessings. And so I have been having such a great time, you know, on social media, talking to people and connecting people. And I have so many goals that I want to do as far as, you know, roses for my brother. Um, And so I'm just excited to see where the journey, the journey takes me and just enjoying the process and, forever thankful to my brother, you know, for making that sacrifice so that I could live. Because after he died, you know, it was initially really, really bad things for me. And now I live such a life of joy. I know I have deeper understanding of things. And I just, 
I'm at peace most days, and if I'm not, I know what to do to get me back to that place of peace. And I'm confident that if he hadn't have died, I would not be the grace that I am now. I probably wouldn't have been able to help that guy who's gotten, who almost got shot by the police. I probably wouldn't be a social worker. I probably wouldn't be even having this conversation with you right now. So truly everything is connected and happens for a reason and is always for our highest good. Even something as dramatic as losing a brother to suicide, you never know who you'll be able to help as a result of your, you know, your past, your loss, you know, your past losses always lead to future life. So keeping that perspective will always keep you grounded and has kept me grounded. So I'm definitely thankful. Maybe feeling suicidal, please contact the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline. It's available 24 hours every day. That's 1-800-273-8255. If you are feeling alone, you are not alone. There are people who care about you and who want to help you realize what a gift you are. I want you to talk about the other projects that you're involved with because I know you have to go in addition to Roses for My Brother. You're wonderful to be doing this for the homeless population of DDC. So just share uh, what you're doing and where people can contact you. Sure. Um, Well, I'm a part of a campaign called For the Love of the V. Um, I'm partnering with a friend's um, agency um, called The Sugar, The Sugar Zine. Um, it's, a, it's a magazine, and we are collecting feminine hygiene products for poverty-stricken women in the D.C. and Maryland metropolitan area. Um, so we're requesting uh, items such as tampons, sanitary napkins, depends, toilet tissue, panty liners, and unscented wipes. Um, our goal is to collect $5,000 worth of products, and we're going to be distributing them to local shelters um, in the DMV area for women. Um, if you want to contribute, um, please follow me on Instagram. You can follow me at Gucci Grace, that's G-U-C-C-I-G-R-A-C-E-E, and there's a link in my bio to donate to a GoFundMe. All the funds will go specifically what, where they're intended to. Um, also, if you feel more comfortable, please shoot me an email at roses for the number four my brother at gmail dot com and we can coordinate something on there as well. Um and if you go to my Instagram page there are local drop off places um in Baltimore and Maryland um and D C as well. Um and again that's Gucci Grace. Gucci G U C C I G R A C E E um for more information. Um I was actually like I said I was homeless growing up and we would have to shower at various places, and so it can be a little bit of a challenge when you're young and going through something like that. So this is definitely something that is important to me and that I'm passionate about. So if you can support in any way, even if it's not monetarily, just spreading the word is greatly appreciated. I just want Mm -hmm. to say what a privilege this has been to get to know you, Grace, and to call you friend. I admire you and all that you contribute to to our society. You have inspired me and my listeners today. And thank you so much for sharing your story with us. So much for having me. It's been a blessing and such a privilege and honor to be here and to share. And I thank you for having, you know, this opportunity, giving me this opportunity to share my spirit, my experiences with the world. And I've had such a great time connecting with you. And thank you to everyone who's listening right now. Um, you're deeply appreciated and loved. 
And don't forget, donate to the causes that Grace mentioned. I mean, these products are really needed. You can make an in-kind donation. You can make a a financial donation. And also, what can I say? You can also donate to the Community Connections organization where Grace works. And uh, that's uh, communityconnections.org. As we mentioned, the funding is really needed in in D.C. to help these people. So there is a tremendous inequality in our country, and we have to stop being in denial about it. The truth of the matter is that we are all just one step away from being homeless as the divide between the haves and the have-nots continues to grow. Let's work together to shift what is happening in this country and around the world. Until next time, keep the peace, everybody. I'm Kathy Barrett, and again, thank you for tuning in. 